My name is Emer McBride. And I wrote mouthpieces. My name is Aoife Duffin. And, and I'm performing the piece of the ad Minical Exists in Emer McBride's mouthpieces. It's three short pieces put together under the one title. The Adminical Exists, An Act of Violence and The Eye Machine. And uh, they're three mostly abstract works, but really trying to write about the female experience. Well, Kevin Brew sent me the scripts and said, this is a piece that Emer McBride is doing. And I didn't even have to read it. I just said, yes, I'm in, I'll do it. And it was a joy to be able to read her words again. So I I read it and then I reread it, then I reread it again, which is sort of the most you can do for working on a radio piece. I didn't necessarily get into great physical shape for it. About a year ago, I was offered a creative fellowship at the Beckett Research Centre in at the University of Reading. And... The remit was that I would spend uh, an academic year coming in to look at Beckett's archive, which is stored there. And at the end of that year, I would go away and write something original that was inspired by my time in the archive. And so mouthpieces came out of that. I was a fan of Beckett beforehand, probably more a, a fan of Joyce, but I was very fond of his novels and I knew some of the more famous plays um, so it seemed to me a kind of perfect moment to really find out more, to dig down into that archive and find out more about his other works, smaller works especially, that I hadn't known about before. This is not my first collaboration with Emer McBride. No, I performed in the Corn Exchange production of A Girl is a Half-Worm Thing. So A Girl is a Half-Worm Thing, I wrote that really when I was 27, in about six months. And... I think I had been really trying to work towards writing a book from my early 20s on. And of course, I was living in London, so I had to temp to pay the rent. But I used to get up at five in the morning and write for an hour or two before I would go into my temp job. And it was all, you know, terrible. But it was really learning how to write and learning the discipline of just sticking with something. And then my husband got a job directing a play in Japan and it was pretty well paid. And he said, OK, we're going to go to Japan. And when we come back, whatever's left of this fee, that's going to be writing time. You sit down, write the book at last. So I sat down and I wrote it in six months. So it, it was just, I had the I had the time, I had the gift of time and I used it. Annie Ryan had for a few years wanted us to collaborate on something. And I happened to have moved to London at the time and I was working on a production of Spring Awakening, which was the second production of Spring Awakening I had been in. And Annie, she posted me the, the book. She posted me a girl as a half-worm thing and asked me to read it. And uh, with a heavy heart, I read it. It wasn't the idea that I sat down with. I had a completely different idea in my head. And I sat down and started writing every day. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know how to write a book. I didn't come from an academic background. So I thought, well, I'll write a thousand words a day and surely something will happen if I do this. And I, so I did that and nothing happened. It was just all, I could tell that it was all rubbish. And then one day I kind of hit on the opening image of a girl as a half-form thing. And I knew from that point on that's where I was going. And I didn't know what the book would be about. I didn't know where it would end. I really, it was a matter of just following those images and and following the language and trying to make those things work together. So it was brand new. 
So as you read that book, you discover it at the same pace that I wrote it. It wasn't planned. Annie adapted it and yes, obviously um, with Emer's consent and it was an abridged version. So there was, uh, things were taken out but nothing else was added or changed as it were. That was sort of the stipulation, if I'm right, Emer. Um, and actually Annie would send me versions, drafts of it when she was still adapting it while I was in London. And actually it was very useful that I was in London and she was in Dublin because I would record it on my phone, just the the whole draft and send it to her and she would listen to it just to hear the arc of it and how it was working as we were kind of taking chunks out and putting stuff back in. And that was really useful for me because I, before we even started rehearsal, I had a really good idea of what it was I was going to be doing and when we came to the rehearsal room it wasn't completed um, we didn't have a final draft per se we were still sort of looking at that arc and how long it could be and what the audience could sustain and what yeah I think the reaction was really a complete surprise to me and also to to the publishers I mean none of us really thought what happened would happen. I think we all hoped that we would sell a few hundred books, maybe get a good review. If we were very lucky, maybe get some kind of shortlisting for a prize. And that would have that was really the epitome of, of our ambition for it. And for then what happened to have happened was, you know, kind of shocking and wonderful and also a bit unnerving. And I suddenly was thrust into a world that I really didn't know anything about. And didn't really understand and and had to learn very, very quickly how to deal with. Yeah, I read it and I guess I was uncertain because I had, up to that point, played a lot of roles that were, I guess, required me to go to places that were dark, which is fine, but uh, it, it takes energy. And, uh, and so Annie, but Annie had the idea to do it as a one-woman piece. I hadn't quite done a one-person show before. I'd done nearly done that uh, Louise Lowe piece actually with Fish Amble once upon a time that was sort of a one woman piece but not on this scale It took nine years to get A Girl as a Half Thing published and then it took nine years for me to write The Lesser Bohemians, the follow up those nine years overlapped but yeah the nine year cycle is it's not a great cycle <laughs> I have to say <laughs> uh, Glutton for punishment I couldn't say no to it because I'd never done a, a sort of big one person show and it was sounded like a terrifying prospect and great also because um, as my friend says you get all the praise <laughs> um, because it's only you I think not having an academic background and having a drama school background was actually the makings of me as a writer I think that training that I had at Drama Centre, which was, you know, very sort of hardcore method Stanislavski, really taught me to think about character in a different way. And so when I came to write the book, that's what I brought with me. That was my toolkit. And luckily I was interested in character. That was what I was, was my sort of primary driver and still is really. And so I think if I had had a much more traditional kind of literary education, I would have been more preoccupied with the supposed rules of how one writes well, or how a book is supposed to look or what the language is supposed to sound like. And I didn't feel that. I was, you know, very unconstrained by all of that. I'd sort of read Ulysses and 
thought, wow, you can do whatever you like if you can pull it off. Joyce said, here you go. You know, for me, he was the he was the, the, the man who opened the gate. And you could go through there and you could do whatever you wanted if you had the courage to do that. Because, you know, no one thanks you for it. No one's dying for you to do that. But hopefully once it's done, people will see value in it or find meaning in it. I did have an epiphany during the rehearsal of the piece because when you're doing a piece on your own, you don't really have the excuse of just being able to rehearse it in the rehearsal room with the other actor. You can work on it at home on your own all of the time. So you do have that pressure over you where every waking minute you think, I should be working on it. Should I be working on it? Should I be resting? So it was about sort of knowing how far to push myself, as it were. And I did have a bit of an epiphany one day where I asked a friend, I said, if I work on this, this sounds very basic, but I said, if I work on this all of the time, every day, will it be better? Because I thought maybe I'll just drain myself out. And my friend responded with, yeah. And uh, and I thought, OK, right. So what I did was I, I, I had recorded chunks of the text on my phone and I would play it in the morning when I woke up while I was doing anything, while I was eating, <laughs> while I was in the shower. And, and very usefully when I was walking to rehearsal, I could listen to it in my ear. And then I would rehearse it for the day and then I would go home and listen to it again. So I just kind of became my own task master, as it were. I was born in Liverpool and my parents were both from Northern Ireland and then we moved back to Sligo just before my third birthday. And so I lived in Sligo or Tuppercurry really until I was about 14 and then we moved to Castlebar. I'm from Kerry. I'm from a place called Castle Gregory in County Kerry. Both my parents were nurses. Um, My father was a psychiatric nurse and they had been in the north and uh, things were difficult being Catholic, working in those professions at that time. And because of the troubles, they went to England. But they always wanted to move back. And my my two elder brothers were born in Northern Ireland and I was born in Liverpool. But because of the troubles, they, they moved back to the Republic. That's where I grew up. So I did leave and start and everything here, Davit College in Castlebar. And then I went to drama school in London when I was 17 and spent three years at that. That was great. I, I had been really, you know, keen on theatre uh, when I was growing up and I'd done all the, the feshes in Sligo, fesh Sliggy and fesh Kill. And I, you know, did all the plays and the duologues and all this stuff and absolutely loved it and thought really that that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I was writing all the time from really my late childhood, early teens on. And I always thought I would write, but I suppose in my teens acting seemed to take precedence and I thought that's really where I wanted to go. Well, it was interesting listening to Emer talk there because it made me think maybe I've come at it from a similar angle to Emer in the sense that when I auditioned for Trinity and then did the course in Trinity, I had never seen a play. I'd maybe seen the amateur dramatic company in the village, but um, I had never seen a play. So I was coming at it from a completely uh, fresh viewpoint. No, I didn't. I didn't really work as an actor. I had a few jobs when I left. And about six months after leaving, um, one of my older brothers became very ill. And um, I spent a lot of time going back and forth between London and Ireland, helping to take care of him. And then he, he died. And after that experience, I really didn't want to act anymore. 
and didn't really want to live that life anymore. And and also, I think, just realised that actually, personality-wise, I was more suited to a solitary life. There was a man who came to and retired from the UK in the village when I was about 10 and came and did drama classes with us. His name was Tim Patton and... Um, he was the opposite of what, a, like, I don't know, a drama, what you might imagine a drama teacher to be. He wore leather waistcoats and somebody once described him as looking like a guttural caveman. He looked like something out of Lord of the Rings and he had a kind of a nutty professor vibe about him. And he would do these very sort of grown up sketches with us. So they were sort of mostly silent pieces. It, the the Mahari's Mime Company was an amateur company that he set up and he asked me to join it when I was 15, which I was very excited about. But he, he there was a piece called the, the Q-Jumper that we did. I remember when I was about 10 or 11 that we did at the uh, in the club in front of the village. <laughs> and um, it was somebody trying to jump a queue. So there was a queue of people. And when the person gets to the top of the queue, everyone in the queue has realised that that person has skipped. So the queue jumper gets passed down through all of these people and everyone enacts a piece of violence on this person. Well, of course, by the time Girl is a Half-Room Thing was published, I hadn't been involved in the theatre world for, you know, over a decade. And so I was coming out of being a temp and then coming out of staying at home every day and writing with a small child in the bouncer next to me. Uh, so I was, you know, coming out of, of this very particular kind of private, quiet life and suddenly having to have this kind of public facing life where people asked my opinions and wanted me to do things. And I had to answer questions about my work and I had to offer interesting opinions and do readings and sign books and and all of those things were great, but also very hard to get used to when you're not really used to anyone caring whether you're living or dead, you know, apart from your close family. To suddenly be of interest to people is a bit disturbing, actually. Um, when I came out of Trinity, I worked with Team Educational Theatre Company for a couple of years. I did three shows with them. Martin Murphy was, the, was running Team Theatre at the time. And he employed me and actually two of my other classmates from Trinity, Stephen O'Rourke and Will Irvine, which was really nice, a really nice transition from college because you're with the same people for three years. Well, The Lesser Bohemians, I started writing that about three years after I finished A Girl as a half Home Thing and was very much in the throes of... Um, failure, actually, of, of not being able to get this book published and feeling like I had to make a choice about who I was as a person who it was kind of a dark night of the soul. Well, if you're if you're going to be a failed writer, is that a life that you want to choose for yourself? And of course, no one wants to be 30 years old and think, well, I'm going to choose failure because I like writing so much. But essentially, that was the choice. Like that was those were my options was be a temp or be a writer, even if that's a failed writer. Um, and so I decided, hooray, I'll be a failed writer and started writing Lesser Bohemians. I had just moved back to Cork and I was missing London. And so I started to write about London. And then I started to write about the London that I had known as a 17 year old when I first arrived in 1994 and started to think about drama school. And it really, it just kind of snowballed 
from that. And the characters then, of course, develop their own life. But I decided early on that I really wanted to base that London on on the London that I had known, but the London of my memory rather than, you know, I was very conscious of Joyce and his thing about Dublin, how if it was raised to the ground, it could be rebuilt brick by brick from Ulysses. And I thought, yeah, I really want to recreate the London that I knew, but I want it just to be from memory. So it might be wrong. That shop may not have been on that corner or that person may not have, you know, been, I don't know, performing such and such at such and such a place. But I remember that. I remember it in that way. So that's how it's going to be. Um, So if London was raised to the ground, it could be rebuilt, but it would be the London of my memory rather than the real thing. We did a rehearsal of this last week over the phone and um, it's not the same thing at all working for radio piece and theatre because there's obviously a natural instinct I have with reading this piece, with reading Emer's writing. When you're working on a mic, you have to maybe sort of bring the levels down a lot more than you would on a on a stage because you're it's like you're just whispering in somebody's ear as opposed to trying to get the people at the back of the auditorium to hear. I've really enjoyed doing this. It was, you know, a bit nerve-wracking. I had done the audiobooks for both of my novels, but that's different. That's you sit and you just read what you wrote out loud. Um but I enjoyed it and it was kind of a safe way to re-experience acting again and you know no one could tell me what to do because I'm like well I wrote it so shut up (laughs) but this was different because this was more like acting and but of course it was also great to work with Aoife again after the experience of her being so fantastic in the the theatre version of A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing but you know she's a very good actress and I don't know what I'm doing so it's kind of odd to be doing things with her but great I have to say I've enjoyed it and she's been very kind about it all. <laughs> I was saying to Emer I love doing radio pieces because it's very we were both saying it's very pure it's a very kind of pure acting experience nobody's looking at you and it is all about your your vocal nuance. Well, no. <laughs> Being directed, is, it's it's interesting because, of course, because I've written it, I have a very particular idea of how it's uh, supposed to sound. And so I, you know, was really not keen to have any direction, but that uh, obviously didn't work out that way. And Kevin Brew, the producer, very kindly and subtly and delicately nudging this way and that way, actually really helped me to think about the pieces in a different way, which I really liked, which was nice and nice to see that the work could hold up to being interpreted in different ways. My God, you can spend so much time looking at yourself on a screen or on an audition tape or whatever and just feeling like you're not good enough. And so when you're doing a radio piece, you know, just all your training is what you need. Your, you know, your your performance, your acting skills, your craft is, is the thing that's important. Nobody cares if you have gone to the gym that morning. <laughs> Uh, well, I um, will hopefully have a new book out next year. And uh, I don't know if I can say any more about that at the moment. And there are some other things, but I definitely can't say anything about that. <laughs> <laughs>